0: The air was cool on Arch Zenith Hill, as cool as jungle climates went, but there was no breeze down by the river. Fat dollops of warm water fell on the cousins as they strolled beneath the overhanging canopy. The flagstones became more and more consumed with vines and mud It seemed as if man-made things were consumed by nature in this place. Churnor gazed into the jungle, then lurched and staggered as he saw humanoid forms watching them. At first he thought they were the hanging fetishes that the affidavits used to mark their territory, but they were men. They seemed to have crocodilian skins. The backs of their arms were ridged and bumpy, their chests ridged horizontally, perhaps the result of scarification or the insertion of ivory behind the flesh. Each of them had a vast quantity of painted knives stashed, tucked, and hung across his body to the point of decoration, and they had fully black eyes. "'Those are eerie ones, aren't they?' said Truenor. "'They're the warriors.' They might have given you quite the fright, but they're the hardcore of their society. Even you shouldn't lose your nerve at the sight of their regular men and women. Trust me, the only honor the affidavits have is in their warrior lodges, since they live away from those slime-pit warrens. You've never seen an affidavit fastness. They could have been cities given millennia. Now they're like wood-plank castles set up and forgotten by children. The two arch-zenite nobles came to a little mud beach next to a river that swirled and frothed like a jacuzzi. There was an Ascension Aeromarine seaplane at anchor, the height of expense among such planes, and it curled back and forth in the water like the paw of a satisfied cat. Truanor stopped dead where he stood on the mud slope between the end of the flagstone trail and the waterline. There were a number of ponderous human forms laying flat in the mud like seals. They must have been affidavits, but they were totally different from the warriors. They were morbidly obese, wearing almost nothing, laying in a line like hoagies on a platter, the nearest one lolled his head towards them with heavy-lidded eyes, then began trying to struggle onto his side so he could stagger away and escape. To his left was an enormous woman laying on her back. Chocolate bile had filled her nostrils, and she wasn't breathing. What's wrong with them? Druinor cried. Castor gave him a withering glance over his shoulder. They're enjoying the sacraments of the opium priest's cousin. But Castor, we can't make anybody into that. Let's show Uncle Tazrim what this is turning people into. Blame the confectioners before you blame our family, sneered Castor. We're not the only ones who supply them with the fruits of civilization. Lay down and cuddle with the affidavits if you wish. You're as tiresome as they are. I'm getting the pilot. Castor walked down along the water line and whistled at the seaplane, whose pilot glanced out the window and waved, starting the engine. He motored the roaring machine near enough to the shore that the nobles could board without wetting their feet. The affidavit had failed to get up and lay still, blinking slowly. Another affidavit had raised his head to look at the flying machine, but the others were catatonic. The seaplane negotiated at the river for some time, straddling rocks and scraping beneath branches until they reached a wide plain of brown water. The Archsenites could see two-story thatched houseboats up the river, one manner of affidavit residence. The seaplane accelerated and took off over the houseboats, blowing twigs and daub from their roofs. I'm concerned about you, cousin. You've been acting the coward and the naive child since we left Hightower Hall. How are you going to deal with the Satrocians when you wet your pennies at the sight of some puffed-up primitives enjoying the riverbank? There's a line, Caster. What we're doing to them doesn't involve honor. We haven't even taken them by force. We've rotted them out like candy rots a tooth. You simple, silly little lass. You're such a... you're like a child playing with dolls. And you imagine every one of them gets to win its heart's desire. Is your thinking on force and victory so shallow? Force is a spectrum. It takes many forms. It's like magic. It's not all fire and thunder. ''It's not about force,'' said Truenor. ''We're making them useless. To us, as much as to themselves.'' Gaster shrugged. ''They were useless before. They're marginally less useless now, keeping the other tribes in check.'' ''But listen, cousin. We're dancing around the real issue. Your lack of loyalty.'' ''I am loyal. But I'm loyal to House Hightower before any... any single issue.'' ''What are you going to say, before any single uncle?'' ''Perhaps before any cousin. You and I are on the same level. Your father said it. You're not the dictator of this expedition.'' So if i tell you you're wrong that has nothing to do with disloyalty you have your orders sweetheart hissed castor and you'll carry them out no matter what your aching heart makes you blurt they sat without speaking for some time while the propeller roared what could truanor do his cousin was fully invested but when truanor looked into the future he felt that if he participated in making people into those bloated slugs in the riverside shade he saw his soul becoming weak hollowed out a pawn, a lifeless cog, and a gray grinding machine. Truanor was not afraid to kill. He was eager to strike down any scion of another house in a street fight. He'd be glad to lead an expedition against the savages that still resisted Argyzanite rule. His heart had ached at the conclusion of the victorious war with Palmgrove, because he was just a little too young to participate in it. Truenor would gladly kill rivals, Scythians, Palmgrovers, and Barbarians, but kill and be done with it. Kill in the heat of battle, then let the corpses burn on a pyre of glory. Don't cage your enemy in an underworld on earth. Don't rot his blood, his bones, and his soul while he still lives. If Truenor participated in this, then his future would mean little to him. The gleam of glory that he'd anticipated would be gone. But if he stood against his family, there'd be nothing left for him. It would mean walking off the end of the earth. He'd have less position than a peasant. He'd be a hunted mendicant pariah. Your soul is more rotten than those pigs on the beach, said Shurnor. They've made their world into a dream. You'll make yours into a nightmare. We were raised to be warriors, not dealers of drugs. I'll protect you, though I wish I could let you reap what you sow. I'm going to be the second set of eyes in whatever god-awful Gamora we're going to. My loyalty is to House Hightower, and you're a Hightower. But I won't participate in this as anything other than a Guardian. You're on your own when it comes to handling the heroin. Ha! You think yourself a warrior but your heart's soft and sweet as funnel cake. We're going to see how long your loyalty holds up when it's already been cracked by a stroll along the river. I think you'll lose it in the city of smoke and ruin. The biomes shifted beneath their plane. Jungle gave way to sea, sea gave way to scrubland. The earth was bright and fertile by the coast, but as they flew inland it grew more and more ashen. Where will we land? called Truinor to the pilot. They have a big trough of water in the city. It's a reservoir. Lately, they've had to fortify it because the fields are drying up. Should we really be landing in that? The pilot shrugged. That's where I'm supposed to land, Master Hightower. Don't harass the peon, Trunor. Your prattle does dull the senses. Trunor clenched his jaw and gazed out of the window. The tan desert of crabgrass and cacti suddenly turned into a blooming wonderland of luscious red, pink, and purple fields. What? They're like flower gardens. They made a flower garden in the desert. must be vast. That's exactly what it is, you droll buffoon. Far more productive than the saffron and dye they used to plant in that worthless earth. A city came into view. It was a vast expanse of tan stone squares stacked upon each other like rolling blankets or brick pile castles. There were enormous manors and houses of state in the city center like bulbous cathedrals or monolith mausoleums. And here and there were scattered spike-walled complexes of rich and ornate manor houses, clad in mosaic or graven marble and gracefully wrought iron ivy. Straddling the city was an enormous statue that was made of onyx, jet, or cast iron. It was holding a vast, gleaming red ruby to its eye, and it must have looked like some kind of predatory shadow demon by night. Know what that is, asked Castor with a smile. A statue. It's a superweapon. It can roast whole armies. And when the high nobility want to punish someone, they put a rope around his head and bake him with the statue's beam until it cracks his skull like an eggshell. Say what you will about this hovel of badland yokels. Their nobles have style. The biplane turned and began to descend towards the city. Indeed, at the heart of the metropolis was a long strip of dark, shimmering water, and the biplane came down between the houses and towers with a thump along the freestanding canal. There were little pleasure boats here and there, but their passengers hauled them up onto the stone-blocked bank as the seaplane approached. They came to a stop and Truaner looked around. There was a ten-foot-tall caterpillar of barbed wire that had been strung around the canal's fortification. There were soldiers carrying bolt-action rifles and wearing militarized versions of the vast-brimmed hats, characteristic of latifundia field capos. These were normally worn wide open, but could be tied up like a parcel on their heads when close-quarters activity was required. Shall we disembark? Trunor asked the pilot. Is he in charge? Spat Caster as he stepped out of the plane onto its pontoon, then onto the stone wall of the trough. Thank you. Good landing, Trunor said to the pilot, who bowed his head very low. Trunor stepped out onto the pontoon, then halted transfixed as he was met by the point of a slithering rapier. Sorry, cousin, but I've made a decision. You'll be going back to Arch Zenith now. You're too soft, cowardly, and morally confused to be present for this affair. You're a liability, and you being here makes it less likely that I'll come home, not more so. Trunor grimaced and whipped the rapier away from him with his stiletto as he drew it, nearly knocking it from Castor's grip with a clang. Heads turned from all around the canal. Trunor brought the stiletto level with his armpit, ready to dart a stab into Castor if he needed to. Your blood is on your own head unless you sheath that tentacle. Remember, our pilot has no loyalty to a corpse, and these soldiers would be glad to tell anyone what they've seen today. Hmm, smiled Castor. I guess you're less of a kitten than you seemed, cousin. Very well, you've passed my test. Truanor shook his head slowly. Don't push me again, cousin. I value Hightower blood, no matter how corrupt the vessel. Castor stepped down from the wall of the great trough and spread his arms. Come on then, Truanor. Let's see the sights of this magical place. I know it'll transform you. Your soul and your backbone. Truanor stepped out onto the canal wall. Walk in front of me or I'll transform you, he said. Castor's smile disappeared. Don't be tiresome. I've given you a degree of respect and you cast it back in my face. Trunor stared into his eyes. I will cast my boot into your face if you don't start walking, and we know where that'll end. Castor gave him a mirthless smile once more. Of course, cousin. Let's go find the orthodoxy of opium. You'll be able to relax once you feel more at home. Trunor sheathed his stiletto and followed Castor. The soldiers were watching them, smiling with amusement or standing in awe of the warlike fractiousness of these splendid foreign nobles. A few of them trotted to the wire and used their bare hands to pull an opening for them, gingerly plying the steel with their fingertips. This is Dave Greggs. Uh, I hope that you've enjoyed or have at least been affected by (laughs) uh, The Thane of the Poppy. Some of the stuff in the story and some of the stuff that's coming up uh, is derived from things that I've seen or, um, are things that I've seen, uh, most, most, I mean, a lot of it's imagination, but some of it is, is, um, based on some very freaky or nightmarish, uh, things that I've encountered. That's not a determiner of quality or rather that's not a guarantee of quality, but I think that one measure of validity in a piece of fiction is whether it's true to life in some way and so um a lot of the time when i write a story it's either based on something that i've experienced that i want to elucidate or explore or um get to grips with in some way in a story uh even if it's highly dramatized at least compared to reality though of course when something happens in reality it carries a drama with it that can exceed momentous, um, uh, events depicted in fiction. Um, but yeah, so I hope that you've enjoyed this or, or been affected by it. And that's ultimately all I can ask for. Um, <laughs> can't even ask for that. I suppose I can just shoot for it anyways. Um, it's my ambition to become a professional writer, author, uh, and voice actor. Uh, and so if you'd like to help me achieve that, uh, continue to not continue because i'm going to continue to produce this stuff anyways but you know devote all my time to it or my you know most of my free time the best part of the day um please go to patreon.com slash fierce firelight and see if you like any of the options there i think i'm going to add a one dollar option because i've heard that uh a lot of people sort of prefer to do that for like a vast quantity of you know artists or what have you um rather than receive whatever you know you get transactionally from a higher tier uh, or go to co-fee slash as in ko-fi slash fierce firelight. Thank you very much.